0: and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walke.
1: Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Let's bow our heads together. Attendance is about what it usually is on the Sunday of Labor Day weekend, if you know what we mean, Holy One. An extra day for rest and play means that there are fishing holes to get to, sleep to catch up on, and highways and byways to travel. This weekend of celebration of the social and economic achievements of American workers isn't a high holy day in the church. But because Thanksgiving is a mark of the people of God, we would be remiss to not express our gratitude for those who made Labor Day possible. Organized labor, also called trade unionism or association and activities of workers or collective bargainers, gets credit for this one. It's also true, as former president and faithful Baptist Jimmy Carter once noted, that every advance in this half century, social security, civil rights, Medicare, aid to education, one after another, came with support and leadership of American labor. We confess, Holy One, that we are a bit embarrassed that he wasn't able to wholeheartedly identify the Church, as supporting all that work, too. Help us to learn everything we can from our union siblings, for they can surely show us a few things about sharing each other's yoke so that everyone's burden would be made light. We pray in the name of Jesus, our teacher and lead organizer. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter of Paul to Philemon. The lectionary excludes the last four verses, but I mean we're already into it, so I'm going to read the whole thing. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. To Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account." I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Uh, Of course, I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Here we are again rifling through the very back of the Bible, going through someone else's mail. On this peculiar Christian practice, theologian Tex Sample writes, although Paul's letters are often read as if they are somehow letters to us, they are actually glimpses into the everyday circumstances of Paul's efforts to oversee a fledgling movement 2,000 years ago. Each of the authentic letters reveals a slice of Paul's life never intended to be collected and venerated as they have in their role anchoring what has become the New Testament. Paul would undoubtedly be apoplectic if he knew that some of his letters, dashed off in impulsive outbursts at disobedient and wavering little faith communities, were now held up as holy and as the Word of God all the authentic letters of Paul were occasional, having been written in response to a particular situation with the content of the letters generated by the circumstances or the actions of a particular set of folks in each community. And in many cases, it is clear that someone's like, someone like Chloe's people in 1 Corinthians have snitched on their fellow church in a letter to Paul, intending to compel him to respond in writing. And while never intended to be universal manuals for Christian behavior, Paul's letters are nonetheless invaluable in guiding and shaping the lives of Christian communities. You may have picked up on the qualifier I used several times now in describing Paul's letters, authentic letters of Paul. The majority of the New Testament consists of letters. Many of them are attributed to Paul, But scholars have some things to say about their authenticity. There are, as Pamela Eisenbaum explains, different ways to count Paul's letters, depending on what criteria you use. At this point, the answer to the question, how many of the letters are authentically Paul, is usually seven. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon. These texts are commonly known as the undisputed epistles, which means that all scholars agree these texts were authored by Paul. So what about Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians, or how about First and 2 Timothy and Titus? And those, le- those texts claim to be written by Paul, but put bluntly, scholars do not believe Paul is really the author of those letters. They are pseudonymous. That is, they are ascribed to Paul, but Paul didn't write them, a conclusion scholars come to using external and internal evidence, grammar and language comparison, and contradictory messaging. To write something in Paul's name was a tactic. It lent authority to the message. But this presents some problems because those who wrote in Paul's name did not always share Paul's vision. There are indeed some significant shifts in theology when we compare Paul's authentic writing, which could be described as radical, to those that were written in his name, which reflect the hierarchy of the second century church. Theologians Marcus Borg and Dominic Crossan describe these letters as domesticating and, in some instances, even reversing. Paul's passion for rejecting the Roman imperial world in which he and his followers of the way lived. The letter we read today, the letter to Philemon, is unique among Paul's undisputed letters. It is the only letter we have that he wrote to an individual person rather than to a community Years ago, my favorite retired Baptist preacher, Doug Manning, gifted me a set of Clarence Jordan's cotton patch version of the New Testament. And it's easier to hear the very personal nature of the letter in this translation. Here's the greeting. From Paul, Christ Jesus prisoner, and brother Timothy, to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and sister Abby and Archie, our fellow fighter, and the church gathered at your house, We wish you grace and peace from our Father God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a matter about which I, as a Christian, have every right to make a demand of you, but because of our mutual love, I'd I'd rather make it a request. And what is this personal, but not private, request? Slavery. Our best reconstruction of the situation writes, Borg and Crossen is that Onesimus was in some very serious trouble with his owner, Philemon, and fled, legally by Roman law, for intercession to Paul, whom he recognized as the somewhat superior friend of his master. But now that original situation has changed because now Onesimus is a believer. Yes, this is personal to Philemon. But it is not private. It is personal in that slavery impacts him directly. The loss of an enslaved person would have affected Philemon's pocketbook and his household, his standing. But slavery is not a private issue because it also has something to do with impacting the whole, the shape and shaping of the community. So what exactly is Philemon's duty in that changed situation? Is it to take Onesimus back as, a, as forgiven and now a Christian slave? Or, or is it to give Onesimus to Paul as, and, and let Paul do as he sees fit? Or, to name the elephant in the room, is it to stop participating in the practice of slavery altogether? Now, the right choice is obvious to us. Slave should not be a word in any of those sentences to begin with. And we expect Paul to tell Philemon that he shouldn't own any humans, whether they are Christian or not. But at no point does Paul ever explicitly denounce the practice of slavery. Nowhere does he say slavery is a sin. Indeed, Harry Fosdick, the preaching great of Riverside Church in New York City, once rightly lamented that slavery is never explicitly condemned before the New Testament ends. We know all too well the consequences of this omission. It is recent history. We continue to wrestle with its awful legacy. In the United States, in particular, writes Eric Barretto, Philemon was one biblical text misused to justify the continued enslavement of our African-American brothers and sisters. After all, if Paul in this text is so willing to return a runaway slave to his owner, then shouldn't we follow suit? If Paul was unwilling to buck the laws of imperial Rome, Why should American Christians disobey the laws of a democratic state that wants slavery? One crucial level of our interpretation of Philemon must deal with our own recent collective past, a past in which biblical sanction of slavery and segregation and rancid racism was simply taken for granted by most of our predecessors in the faith. Friends, we, too, are heirs— of these historical disasters. Our past is not just our past, but our present and our future. There has been plenty of writing to show that Paul's call for Philemon to treat Onesimus as a beloved brother at the very least, pushes back against the idea that people are property. It is certainly true that Paul's letter aims at transforming Philemon's heart and mind, as much as it advocates for a change in Onesimus' status. One could deconstruct the letter line by line by line and argue what Paul really meant in this letter. After lamenting that slavery is never outright condemned in the New Testament, Harry Fosdick would go on to say that it was nevertheless being undermined by ideas that in the end, like dynamite, would blast slavery's foundations to pieces. And some of that dynamite is indeed in Paul's letter to Philemon. We could get into the weeds of the rhetorical pressure Paul put on Philemon by shifting from second-person plural to second-person singular throughout the address— The letter is to Philemon and his household, which means that Paul is calling upon the witness of the whole church in Philemon's house to ensure that Paul's hopes are fulfilled. If we read between the lines, it is possible to say that Paul means for Philemon to abandon the practice of slavery. And then there is that line. One more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored for you. to you. Paul is telling Philemon to go ahead and get that blow-up mattress out of the attic, because Paul is coming for a visit just to make sure Philemon has been faithful. But it is not enough to preach what Paul might have meant in this letter to Philemon all that time ago. We must confront how Philemon was actually read not all that long ago because what needed to have been said wasn't said. In remembering this text's past misinterpretation, we are reminded that we need to be bold and humble in how we read Scripture today. We too are susceptible to reading a text in ways that affirm our every assumption, even the cruelest ones we hold. But perhaps harder than that is the prompting for us to ask ourselves what chains continue to bind our neighbors, our communities, and ourselves because we won't come right out and say what needs to be said. leave things murky, ask for people to read between the lines, because there is no clarity. There is a website called Church Clarity, a crowdsourced database of local congregations scored on how clearly they communicate their beliefs regarding the queer community and women. Some churches play games with this, saying that they welcome all, but Only some people get to teach Sunday school, or only some people get to stand in the pulpit. Many churches fail to disclose their activity that are enforced in their sanctuaries. Can a woman preach? Will they officiate a same-sex wedding? Are you open to hiring a queer pastor? Answers to those questions often remain elusive, and although open and affirming, is personal. It is not private. For a congregation like ours, which is very clear about inclusion, we can begin to do more. We can be more clear, like including our pronouns when introducing ourselves and inviting others to do the same. For people who are not cisgender, this is an especially important act of hospitality It takes the pressure off of those who are most vulnerable in a world that weaponizes particular personhood and identities. This is how we normalize the idea that using correct pronouns is just respectful and inclusive. If we normalize pronouns, maybe we can begin to normalize equality and equity. This is personal to us but it is not private this is true for racism as Oklahoma's own activist and rapper JB recently preached in a tweet some white people be like how can I be a good ally then go home and have dinner with a racist family and sit through the whole dinner while the family is saying racist things and not say anything how about you start there Let us be clear with one another. Say what needs to be said. Being anti-racist is personal. It is not private. This is true, too, for access to abortion. As an open and affirming congregation, we affirm that all are made in the image of God, all reflect the goodness of God, and all are fully and loved and embraced by God. To limit healthcare autonomy of one group of people based on their biology is certainly not compatible with this view, just as any limitation on the rights of autonomy of any group, queer folks, people with disabilities, racial minorities, or any other marginalized group would also be in direct opposition to our open and affirming position. Standing up for access to basic health care is personal, it is not private. Here's the thing with this one, though. There is virtually no gender gap in the support for abortion rights. And yet, there is a measurable gap in who we hear speak about it. Women are posting, zooming, riding, shouting, and marching to make their voices heard. The near absence of men in this space is very loud. Some of it rests on the media's failure to take male stories about reproductive rights seriously and reflect them in the news and in movies. But as Liz Plank reminds us, the fact that men over the age of 50 are the only demographic that have reliably become more anti-abortion is an indictment of the younger generations of men who have failed to push through the temporary discomfort of those cross-general conversations with their dads and uncles and relatives. Supporting bodily autonomy is personal. It is not private. All of this is to say that we have work to do, fam. These are personal issues, but they are not private ones. We are accountable to each other and to God. Let us live so that we might be called good and faithful, and so that whoever preaches about us in 2,000 years from now won't be wondering why we weren't clear. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.